0: Welcome to the Progressive Property Podcast, helping you invest in property for freedom, choice and profit. You'll learn new, innovative and multiple streams of property income, whether you want to start, scale or systemize. And even if you don't have deposits. Hi, I'm Peter Jones, Chartered Surveyor, Author and Property Investor, and this is the Progressive Property Podcast. And I've got some questions here which have been sent in by listeners, so thank you very much for that. But before we start that, usual plea, if you enjoy this, and I imagine that you do because you're listening to this and many of you said how much you enjoy the podcast, if you could go to wherever you get your podcasts from and leave a review, that would be really, really helpful. So in this episode, I'm gonna answer some more questions which have been sent in. We had an episode recently where I started with a few questions and the questions keep coming. That's one of the great things about property, isn't it? There's always more to know and more to learn. So I've pulled out a few of the questions here, which I think are gonna help everybody. And let's kick off with the first one. So Dan says, Peter, I've heard that you don't manage your own properties. Why don't you manage your own properties? Well, Dan, that is a great question. And I suppose the main reason is that most of my properties actually are not located near where I live. Now that might surprise some of you because the whole thing around gold mine areas can be somewhat contentious and we've got a question coming later about gold mine areas so i'll talk about that more then but yes as a practicality most of my properties actually are not located near enough to where i live for me to actually to be able to manage them myself anyway now i say that and i don't want to confuse everybody and i don't want to make this into a really long answer when it's not really warranted but i do actually have some properties which are located close enough And I guess I could choose to manage those if I wanted to. But the reality is I actually don't want to manage my properties. And I suppose there's a number of reasons for that. The main reason is I didn't get into property to create a new job. I got into property really to replace my job, which I had lost. Maybe in another podcast one day I'll tell you more about my story. But I'd been made redundant. I needed to do something to replace my income and so I had to replace the job that I lost, but I wasn't looking to create a new job as such. So that's the first thing. It's about being an investor and not being a landlord. And if you're wondering what I mean by that, and you may think this is a bit of a cynical definition, but my definition of the difference between a landlord and an investor is that an investor is somebody who buys property and they live off the passive income and they go off and have a good time and just let the properties look after themselves or get somebody else in to look after the properties, I should say. Whereas a landlord is somebody who you'll usually find at a network meeting who looks old and harassed and they've usually got a big bunch of keys on a belt and they're going around doing all the stuff which really, as investors, I think we should outsource. I know which of those two roles I'd much prefer. I want to be an investor and I don't want to be a landlord. And, do you know, I've actually tried managing my own properties in the dim and distance. When I first started out, I did buy a few properties closer to where I lived, and it didn't really work out. I was managing the properties myself, and I realized, because I thought that was the mature, responsible thing to do, by the way, and I realized very quickly that there's a mindset thing around this, because I wasn't really suited to managing my own properties. I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. But I think that sometimes we can go into these things without thinking about it, and we can assume it's just the right thing to do, and it's not necessarily the right thing to do. There's lots of different personality types. You ever come to Masterclass at Progressive, you'll know we talk about um, profiling different personality types, and I realize now, now that I've listened to that training and been a part of that training on personality types, that probably my personality type doesn't necessarily fit or suit managing my own properties. And a good example of this, is I was managing, I owned a property, I managed a property, which was probably about 25 minutes drive from where I live. And the tenant of this particular property was never easy, but I was gobsmacked when Christmas Eve, I think it was Christmas Eve 2003, I got a phone call from this particular tenant. Now to protect the innocent, although he's not innocent, he's actually very guilty, but to protect the innocent, we'll call him Gary. And Gary rang me up and he said, Peter, My kitchen light's not working. And by the way, before you complain and email in, that is how he talked, that's how he sounded. And I looked at my long-suffering wife. This is about half past two, Christmas Eve afternoon. And I said, I've got to go. Gary's kitchen light's packed up. I've got to go and see what's going on. So I waved a goodbye. I waved the children goodbye, Christmas Eve afternoon. I drive 25 minutes. I get to the property. And what it was, it turned out that Gary had... uh, a fluorescent strip light in the kitchen and the bulb had gone. And he kind of looked at me accusingly as if it was my fault. You know, What are you going to do about it, mate, type thing going on. And I thought, oh my word, because actually only about 10 minutes walk from Gary's flat, there was a and q which Christmas Eve, was it open? Yes, it was. Could he have gone and got himself a bulb? Probably. Did he go and get himself a bulb? No, he didn't. So I had to go down to B&Q and I bought this bulb And I'm not very practical. It took me about half an hour to get this bulb in, to get it all working. Did Gary say thank you? Absolutely not. What did Gary do? Well, Gary escorted me off the premises, watching me carefully to make sure that I didn't nick anything on the way out. And he sort of stood at the front door and went, "Mm," at me as I left. And I don't know what happened. To this day, I do not know what happened to me, but I had this sudden rush of blood to the head. And because it was Christmas Eve, I guess, and you know, it's a, I was feeling goodwill to all men and all that kind of stuff, peace on earth, I found myself reaching into my inside pocket and I pulled out my wallet and I took out five crisp £10 notes and I gave them to Gary and I said, Merry Christmas, Gary. And as I drove away, I thought, what on earth was I doing because he could have gone down to B&Q and sorted all this for himself, but he called me out on Christmas Eve afternoon and I just thought to myself, I should not be doing this. I should not be managing my own properties. And I realised it's not a sign of failure. I don't take it as that. It's it's a learning experience. But I realised it's not in my flow. It's not who I am. It's not what I should do. Now, not everybody would agree with me. If you come on Masterclass and you listen to the lovely Anne Holton. She does manage her own properties, but she's very, very clever about it because what she has done is she's set up a managing agency to actually manage her properties, which I think is a really smart move. So there's different ways that you can do it, but whatever you do, you need to make sure that it's in your flow. And for me, it just wasn't. So if you said to me, Peter, do you think I should manage my own properties? If you asked me, I would say, probably not. But obviously, that's got to be your decision. I'm not saying you, you can't. It's just a question of should you. But for everybody, probably the real answer is that when you first get into property, you probably want to manage your first one or two properties for maybe six months or a year so that you get to understand and learn the system. Because one of the things which is going to happen to you going forward as you acquire more properties and as you take on managing agents as you outsource the management to managing agents is you need to understand what a managing agent actually does. You need to understand how they're going to communicate what they do. And if you understand what the managing agent does, then it'll be far easier for you to be able to, for example, see when they're telling you something which isn't quite right, or see if there's a problem there, which you can see is brewing, but they've missed it, for example, because you'll have the experience. So I think get a little bit of experience under your belt so you understand, and then once you've got that experience then i would outsource it and i wouldn't do it personally there we are but if you disagree that's absolutely fine enjoy managing properties enjoy your christmas eve afternoons for changing light bulbs there we go it, no it's not necessarily that way but you have to train your tenants i guess here's another question from sam how easy did you find it to develop a gold mine area away from home Good question following on from that. One of the main reasons why I don't manage my properties is because most of my properties are actually 150 miles from where I live. Again, that might surprise a few people because a lot of, a lot of the time we think, well, shouldn't we actually be buying properties near home? Well, again, we're gonna think about that in a, in a later question. It all depends on what you're trying to achieve, of course. And it all depends on whether what you want to do actually works where you live. But we'll think about that when we come to that question. So, going back to Sam's question, how easy did I find it to develop a gold mine area away from home? Well, to be honest, Sam, it never occurred to me that it had to be hard. And I think one of the things which I've noticed as a masterclass trainer, with delegates coming on masterclass wanting to learn about gold mine areas, is perhaps this perception that developing a gold mine area away from home is a difficult thing to do it never occurred to me that it had to be. I I just, I, I had to develop a gold mine area. So I just went and did it. I didn't really think about it. And I think there is a danger of overthinking it, you know. We're sort of looking for the problems and the pitfalls before we even start getting out there and trying it. So that was then, and don't forget, I'm quite old. I started, you know, getting on for 20 years ago. There was very little in the way of technology and apps and websites and stuff, which are now available, which very much speed up the whole process of finding a gold mine area, something which we talk about in detail on the masterclass, by the way. But that wasn't available to me, so I had to do it the old fashioned way. And so yes, I used to have to travel up to um, my gold mine area, which is up in the Northeast, and I had to do the old-fashioned things, like going around and talking to estate agents. One of the first things I did to really get to know my gold mine area, which is probably a bit cheeky, but I'm going to tell you what I did anyway, is I found out who the local deal sources were in the area, and I made appointments to go and look at their properties. And I went around with them, and they told me about the properties. They told me, I asked them why they bought properties in these particular areas. I asked them what was good about those areas. I asked them what was bad about the other areas. And I got to know a lot of stuff through deal packages, deal sources. And with that information, I was then able to go to the local estate agents and letting agents and pick their brains and sort of cross-reference what I'd been told by the deal sources with the estate agents and letting agents and come to my own conclusions as to where the best places were to buy to do what I wanted to do. I had to obviously... All of this is meaningless unless you're thinking about what your overall strategy is. And so everything you need to do has to be geared up towards being able to fulfill the strategy that you want to undertake. And that's what I did. And I didn't actually think it was that hard. It was quite easy. Now, nowadays, there's a lot of techie stuff we can use, as I say, which would greatly speed being able to sort out and develop a gold mine area. But what I would say is, I would still do the old-fashioned stuff as well because I've said it before on this podcast, and I'm sure I'll say it again, but I really believe this very passionately. Property is a people business. And if you try and cut people out, you're not going to get very far. So I'd use the techie stuff, which would help me to perhaps, you know, shortlist a gold mine area or two. But then I'd go and talk to the people on the ground, like the estate agents, like the letting agents, to actually find out what's really happening there. But certainly it would probably speed the process up considerably by using the techie stuff so i could then decide which areas i was going to go to to find the agents to talk to so question here which has been sent in which is basically how do you decide where your gold mine area actually is now as i say we cover this in a lot of detail on masterclass and we probably talk about this well, I've never added it up, probably for about sort of like five hours in total over the course of a weekend. So there's a lot of stuff which I could say about this, but I'm gonna give you sort of a, some sort of a sort of general overview to, to get you started. But if you want to have a lot more of a, a detailed insight, then consider coming on the masterclass. But this is what I'd suggest. When you're starting, you're going to have two choices. And the two choices are these, and these are the only two choices, by the way. You can either start by thinking about the area, or you can start by thinking about the strategy. And for most of us, it's going to make sense to start by thinking about the area, and specifically the area which is local to us. Now, why? Because if we can do something in the area which is local to us, what we could call home, if we can do something near home, then there's gonna be all sorts of advantages. We're gonna know the area, I presume, unless you've just moved there, you're gonna know the area. So you're gonna have local knowledge. If you've lived there for any length of time and you've read the local paper and you've kept an ear to the ground, you're gonna know what's happening. You're gonna know where the new schools have been built. You're gonna know where the new industrial state's been built. You're gonna know where the roads has been widened. You're gonna know where the new housing estates are going in. There's gonna be a lot of really good, useful local information which you can use because it is your local area. And of course, one of the biggest advantages is that you will have properties on your doorstep, almost literally, which is going to cut down travel time. It's going to cut down the amount of time that you need to put into developing a gold mine area because you're effectively living in your gold mine area. If, and I'm going to say this, I wouldn't do it, but you may want to, if you decide that you do want to manage your properties, then of course it makes sense for those properties to be local to you anyway because it's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, for you to manage properties which are at a distance. So those would be the main advantages, which is why I suggest that everybody would start by thinking about their local area. So here's the question. What strategies, property strategies, actually work in your local area? That's what you need to be identifying. So what is it you want to do? Do you want to do HMOs? Will they work in your local area? Is it rent to rent? Is it commercial conversions? Is it flipping? Is it buy-to-let, and specifically BRR buy-to-let, buy, refurbish, refinance type buy-to-let, which allows you to then get your money back out and roll it up and do it again? What is the strategy that you actually want to do? Or what are the strategies that work in your local area? Look at the strategies that work in your local area, and then you have a decision to make. Which of those strategies are you actually going to undertake? And of course, at Progressive, we talk about 70, 20, 10. So you may want to choose three strategies, 70 being your main strategy, and then two subsidiary strategies. Will that work? Can you do that? What is it that's actually working? What are the strategies that work in your area? What are you going to choose? Now, here's the thing, though. Sometimes when we look at the strategies which work in our local area, it turns out that the strategy that we really want to do either doesn't work in that area Or it could be when we look at the strategies that do work in our local area, they're not actually strategies that we want to do. If that is the case, then what can we do then? Well, obviously the choice we have is either to say suck it up and say, right, I'm gonna do something which I don't really want to do, which personally I wouldn't want to do, but you may think for financial reasons, for example, it's a means to an end, it might be a means to an end to achieving a greater goal, you may just do that. But if you want to do something else or you want, don't want to do what you can do in your local area, if you don't like the strategies that do work in your local area, then the only choice you have really is to do something somewhere else. And I think that's where some new investors get a little bit stuck because they kind of feel that it's almost like cheating or a sign of failure to say, well, you know, I can't do it near a home, so therefore I'm going to do it further away from home. That is the reality of life. The, the big strategy which is probably one of the few strategies which is limited geographically is the brr buy to let buy refurbish refinance because we at masterclass we get so many people who come from london the southeast who would like to do brrs but because properties are so expensive and because returns are so low brr tends not to work or at least not to work so well in london or the southeast. And so the only alternative they have if they really, really, really want to do that strategy is to probably go somewhere else and do it, say, for example, up north or in Wales or somewhere like that in the Midlands, in cheaper areas where BRR works very well. And I can tell that sometimes people are a little bit disappointed because they would like to be able to do it near a home. But the reality is if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And so you've got the choice, either choose something near a home that does work or find another area where you can make it work. Now, going back to the question about how hard was it to develop a gold mine area away from home, one of the big things which I've learned since coming to Progressive, and I've only been with Progressive for about five years now, so it's relatively late in my professional property investing life. One of the things which I've learned though is the power of JVs and the power of working with other people. Because prior to coming to Progressive, I. Worked on my own, sort of 15 years in my home office with no human company apart from my wife. Lovely though she is, not interested in property though. So pretty much working on my own, being a bit tongue-in-cheek, I think you realise that. But, it, you know, it, as a solopreneur, that's, that's the reality of life, isn't it? But when I came to Progressive, I realised that with the power of JVs and the power of working with other people... Obviously, there's the opportunity to be able to find a JV partner who can source properties for you in an area where it does work. So what I'll often say at Masterclass when we're talking about gold mine areas is if you want to do something but it doesn't work in your local area, rather than trying to think about the next nearest place where it would work, don't think like that. Think about where you may find a JV partner in an area where it works and team up with them and get them to source the deals for you. To me, that would be the natural way of doing it. And it would make developing a gold mine area very, very easy for you because basically they'll be doing it for you. Here's another question from, well, to protect the innocent again, I'm going to change the name. We'll say it is from Joe. And Joe's question is quite an interesting one. It revolves around tax. And it says, hi, Peter. I bought a property for £50,000 some 20 years ago. I have remortgaged once, so I owe £150,000 on it. It's worth £400,000. If I were to sell it, what would I pay CGT or capital gains tax on? Would it be on £250,000, which is the difference between the value and the mortgage, or would it be on £350,000, which is the difference between the value and the price I paid for it? I've been told by a friend that the loan amount will be deducted meaning that I'm gonna pay the capital gains tax on the £250,000, but what do you think? Well, team, what do we all think? I'm sure most of us know the answer to this, but sadly, Joe, you're gonna find that actually that the loan amount is not going to be deducted. It would be really nice if HMRC, when they're calculating taxes, allowed us to deduct the cost of loans from calculations like capital gains tax calculations, but of course, they don't allow us to do that. The capital gains tax is going to be calculated based on the difference between the purchase price and the sale price. Now, of course, there's capital gains tax allowance, which you can use £11,700, I think it is in this particular tax year but you're not going to be able to offset your mortgage of £150,000, sadly. So unfortunately, you're a bit stuffed with that, Joe. Um, but this is it's, it's one of the things, isn't it, about property? One of the, I think one of the things which comes out from Joe's question actually, on a completely different point, but I think it's worth mentioning, is how it could be very easy to actually take advice from the wrong people. Now, I don't know who's told him. Well, he says, I've been told by a friend that the loan amount will be deducted. And no doubt that friend is well-meaning and kind. But we need to make sure that we take advice from the right people and that we're taking into account the facts when we're planning for the future rather than taking into account wishful thinking. A lot of very important learning points to come out of that. Of course, going forward, if I was with Joe and if I was mentoring Joe, I'd be saying to Joe, well, for any further properties which you buy going forward, you probably want to be buying those into a limited company. And if you're wondering why I'm saying that, if you scroll back down the list of podcasts that have been published, I can't remember which episode it was, but we covered a lot of this in a previous episode of the podcast where we talked about... benefits of buying into a limited company. Big benefit of buying into a limited company obviously you can still offset mortgage interest when you're calculating the profit of the company that can still be offset against the rent and it's charged corporation tax not at capital gains tax rates which could be useful for example blah 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 it's all there in the podcast so we all know that. Let's have a look at another question. Rav has asked What difference has Section 24 had to your views on using capital repayment or interest-only mortgages? Would you use capital repayment now? What a great question, Rav. What difference has Section 24 had to your views on using capital repayment or interest-only mortgages? Would you use capital repayment now? That is a great question. I've never really thought of this. Um, Let's have a, well, let's have a think about it now. I think I'd have to say, and this is so true of property generally, that there's very rarely a a yes, no, one size fits all definitive answer. And so many questions in property usually end up with an all depends answer. And I think this is going to be one of those all depends answers. Now, if you're wondering what section 24 is, I've just alluded to it in the last question, actually. 2015, then Chancellor, George Osborne decided that he's going to take away the landlord's ability to be able to offset mortgage interest against the rent when calculating income tax. So that being the case, a lot of investors are now buying their properties into limited companies. Why? Because limited companies still can offset mortgage interest against the rent when calculating the profits of the company. Whereas if you buy properties in your own name, the ability to offset mortgage interest against the rent is being phased out and will go, I think it's by the end of 2020 or the end of the tax year beginning in 2020, you will not be able to offset mortgage interest. There will be a 20% tax credit, all very complicated, talk to your accountant, but by and large, bottom line, it's much more tax efficient in theory to buy a property into a limited company than to buy it into your own name. So would that make a difference? Well, here's the thing is, if we're buying our properties into a limited company, then actually things haven't changed, have they? As at the time of recording this podcast, limited companies still can offset mortgage interest against the rent. So the arguments for and against capital repayment and interest-only mortgages actually stands. Now, I've been a great believer in interest-only because during the course of my property career, I've been building my portfolio and I've been quite aggressive and very proactive about refinancing my properties. Whenever there's been any equity in the property, I've refinanced, taken equity out. Often the equities come from movements in market value. At the very beginning, when I buy a property, I'll refurbish it and that will add equity and value to the property. Going on from that, it's usually a case of watching the market and the market forces as prices increase and values increase increasing the value of my property and when equity has been there I've taken the equity out and it makes sense to me to do that using interest only mortgages because if you think of it this way if i have been paying down the mortgages and then I decide that I'm going to refinance all I have to do is to I mean what I'm effectively doing is applying to the bank and paying them a fee and paying a lawyer fee in order to get the money back out which I've just paid to the bank to pay down the loan and I'm just asking for it back again and having to pay fees on top. It would be much more cost effective just to take the equivalent amount of money and put it into the bank and wait until I needed it. So that's one of the main reasons why. There's also the fact that it's tax efficient because in a limited company you still can offset the mortgage interest against the rent. Now, the thing about a capital repayment loan is, and, and admittedly, it takes time, you know, in a 20-year in a loan, we're probably only talking after the 10th year, but after the 10th year, you're paying back more capital than you are paying interest because of the way that it's all worked out and calculated, which means that when you get past, say, the 10th year, the amount that you can actually offset against the rent diminishes, which means it's less tax efficient. So, that argument still applies. So, when you think about cash flow, If you're going to refinance, if you want to be tax efficient, then I would say that despite section 24, if you're buying into a limited company, it probably doesn't make any difference. I would still be using interest-only mortgages. But as I say, there is no right or wrong, is there? I mean, one of the advantages of a capital repayment mortgage is that you are paying down the loan. So at the end of the loan period, the loan has gone. Now, I say that's an advantage. If you listen to another podcast of mine, which I recorded a couple of months back, you might remember I was talking about how sometimes I'm asked, Peter, is it a good thing to pay off the loan? Because then I can leave all my properties to my children debt-free. And I think I said it in that podcast, one of the disadvantages of doing that is you might be leaving your properties debt-free to your children, but you're also leaving an estate with a lot of value, which means that you're going to end up paying a lot of inheritance tax. So at on one level, it all sounds very noble and worthy, but at another level, you're actually causing a tax headache. If you keep refinancing and reinvesting and using that money, then you can get get around that, it's less of an issue. For some of us though, it, it, it all depends, perhaps paying down the mortgage using a capital repayment mortgage is a good thing. I mean, for example, as I get older and I'm more conscious about retirement, for example, it could be that it makes sense to have a few unencumbered properties, which, if ever needed to, I could sell. I don't know. Again, though, that would be in the context of the limited company, uh, not in the context of my own name, because in your own name, there's problems with capital gains tax now. I don't know if you're aware, but the capital gains tax regime has changed, which means that property investors actually pay a higher rate of capital gains tax than somebody who invests their money in shares, for example. So whichever which way you look at it, they're out to get us. So it's got to be an all depends. Now, sometimes I'm asked. Isn't the danger of an interest-only mortgage the fact that you get to the end of your term, say the end of 25 years, and because it's interest-only and you haven't paid any of it back, what do you do then? Isn't it all going to be a bit of a disaster because you've got to pay the mortgage back and, you know, if you haven't got the money, then your whole world's going to collapse? Well, again, I think it's not quite as simple as that. So let's just have a think about this. One of the big advantages of having interest-only mortgage is that you're actually buying a property with your interest-only mortgage. And although I wouldn't say that this is a general rule and that it's always gonna be this way, but if you look at the statistics, generally speaking, it seems to be that on average, every 10 years, property has doubled in value. Now, of course, 10 years ago, we had the credit crunch and that's kind of like hit the whole thing. And the system is sort of still readjusting. But it'd be interesting to look at the statistics in 50 years' time, wouldn't it, and to see whether that it's reverted back to its usual pattern. I mean, look, I can't say that it will. I can't stand here and say, do you know what, Property is always going to v- double on average every 10 years. But it has done in the past, and because there's such a demand for property and because we're on an island and land is limited and all that kind of stuff, you would imagine that the same arguments would apply at the end of the day, a lot of, the, a lot of what drives house prices is inflation and wages and employment. And we know that you know, we're short of people working in the UK. It's one of the big arguments around Brexit, isn't it? The politicians are trying to fob us off by saying that they want to limit immigration, knowing at the same time actually to make the economy function, we, we need immigration. And I'm, you know, I'm sorry if that offends your political views, but that is the reality of the situation. So what I'm saying is, will property values continue to increase? They will. Will it be at the rate of doubling every 10 years? Well, who knows? I don't know. But they're going to keep increasing. But let's just assume for argument's sake, you happen to buy in a good area where there's strong demand and the value of that property doubles over 10 years, and then doubles again over the next 10 years. And let's assume that you had a a, a 75% Uh, LTV, interest-only mortgage on it. Let's assume, for example, that the property was worth £100,000 when you bought it and you have a £75,000 mortgage. Well, at the end of 10 years, your £100,000 property has doubled in value to £200,000. But how much is your mortgage? Well, it's still £75,000. But something else has been happening during that 10 years. During that 10 years, there's been inflation. Now, I know there's going to be inflation because the Bank of England are actually tasked by the government to make sure that there's inflation in the economy. The economy needs inflation to function. And the Bank of England are told to keep it at 2%. Now, do they keep it at 2%? Well, quite often it's beyond 2%. So probably on average, inflation is going to be re- in real terms, probably a 3 or 4% or 5% in reality. But even at 2%, there's still something happening. What's happening is that the money value of that loan over that 10-year period has been devalued by the amount of inflation. So if it was 2% per year, it wouldn't be 20% over 10 years because it's compound interest. It might be 25% or 27%. So in real terms, the £75,000 mortgage isn't actually worth £75,000 in real terms to us in 10 years' time. It's like the equivalent of £50,000 now. So we've got the value of the property doubling and we've got the value of the loan diminishing due to inflation. Let's roll it on to another 10 years. So at 20 years time, the property has gone from £200,000 to £400,000. How much is the mortgage? Well, it's still £75,000, but now there's a massive difference, £400,000 to £75,000 it's probably not looking as, as if it's as much of a problem as it might have looked when we first started out. And again, the same arguments apply because there's been even more inflation. So in real terms, in today's money, that mortgage is now probably only worth, I don't know, 30,000 pounds or 20,000 pounds. So it would be entirely possible, should you need to, that if you had a few properties, you could sell one or two and maybe pay off all of the mortgages. If you had to pay off the mortgages, using the proceeds and the equity that you have in your other properties. Would you want to pay off those mortgages though? Well, going back to my last comment about inheritance tax, maybe you wouldn't want to. What you'd probably want to do, and this may or may not be easier in a limited company, my suspicion is it might be slightly easier in a limited company, but I'm not sure. Talk to a good broker. But what you'd probably want to do at the end of the 25 years is just remortgage. So you wouldn't even be thinking about paying the mortgage back. And I think that's one, maybe one of the fundamental flaws and errors in our thinking when we're thinking, well, I don't want to take out an interest-only mortgage because I'll have to pay it back one day. What I'd be thinking is I'm going to take out an, an interest-only mortgage and I'm ha- going to have the expectation that I will never pay it back or at least I will remortgage and just keep rolling it on and rolling it on and rolling it on. And you can see that if you could roll it on, if you could ring fence everything within a limited company and leave the company shares to your children, for example, in 50 years' time, when your children are looking at sort of at, uh, how do they pay off the, the second mortgage because you refinanced after 25 years, and now at 50 years, that's coming up for repayment. Because of inflation and because of the value of the properties, that 100,000 pound property is now probably worth, what, one and a half million? And in real terms, the value of the loan's probably only like five grand. It's loose change, so you probably pay it off in real terms just using the rent. So all of these things, I think, are problems which don't actually exist. So there we are. This is a long answer to a short question. Has it changed my mind on interest-only and capital repayment mortgages? would I be more inclined to go for a capital repayment mortgage? No, I would be inclined to buy my properties into a limited company and keep using interest-only loans for these reasons. But you may have different requirements. Your aspirations may be different. You may be starting from a different place in your life. You may be thinking, as I say, about having some unencumbered properties to sell to supplement your pension. I don't know. So, Think about your strategy. Bottom line is an all depends answer, but you've got to do what's right for you. I'm talking about what's right for me because I'm the one who's asked the question. You may have different views because your situation and your thinking is different. There is no right or wrong answer. Think about what the best thing is for you to do and then do that. Last question we have time for today comes from Trevor. And Trevor says, Peter, I'm getting on a bit. He hasn't told me how old he is. He says, I'm getting on a bit. I had a bit of a financial setback and I find myself without any money. What I really want to know is, is it possible still to get into property using none of your own money? What do we think team? Yes, of course it is, but I'm gonna sort of put some provisos and some reservations on that. So let's start with with the sort of the positive bit. Is it possible to do property without any of your own money? Well, yes, it absolutely is. I started without using any of my own money. Sometimes when I say that, people look at me a bit awry as to say, you sure? That all sounds a bit like hype. In fact, actually, I had an internet troll on one of my YouTube videos who was saying that that's something which comes out of the back end of a bull. Thank you very much for that troll. But it's actually true. I started without any of my own money. I had to. I'd been made redundant and I didn't have any savings. And so I had to find other money. Now, it transpires that most of the money which I used actually came from bank lending. And if I get a chance to do a podcast on how I did it, and then I will tell you all about that. But can you do it without your own money? Yes, of course you can. One of the great things which I've learned since coming to Progressive, as I said earlier, about the power of working with other people is the power of JVs and finding JV finance. So bottom line is, if you don't have any of your own money, somebody out there has got the money. All you need to do is find them, team up with them bring them some value in return for them putting their money into the deal. So the value you can bring is to give up your time. You can use that time to source the deals. So Trevor, can you do this? Yes, of course you can, by teaming up with other people and using JV Finance. But let's think about this a little bit more deeply. Are there other ways of doing this without your own money? Well, yes, there are. The proviso I want to make though is not necessarily no money. You're always gonna need some money as uh, my good friend Dixie Walker will say when he's uh, presenting at Masterclass, you always need some money to have a phone, so you can make the phone calls, to make appointments. You need to have some money so you can buy petrol, to put it in the car so you can go off and do viewings. So you need some money. But there are techniques and strategies that you can use which need very little money. So, for example, using options to buy properties, something which I've done uh, in the past Um And I still do, it's not one of my 70, 20, 10, but occasionally I'll come across an opportunity where it's obvious that an option will work and so I'll use an option. An option, by the way, is a way of taking control of a property without necessarily buying it there and then, but it gives you the right to buy it in the future. And that can work very, very well if you're starting out without any money. If you're starting out without any money, then doing deal packaging, sourcing properties for other people. Selling those deals on or or the details of the deals on for a fee that can be very lucrative and it can help you to build up some cash which you can then use to put into property in your own right, build your capital up so that can work. Rent to rent is another strategy which somebody without any money or very much money could use. Rent-to-rent, very basically, uh, putting it simplistically, it's a a sophisticated form of subletting, but subletting in a way that is legal, by the way, before you start emailing and saying subletting is illegal. I'm not talking about illegal subletting, I'm talking about legal subletting, but rent-to-rent, again, allows you to take control of a property without buying it and being able to arbitrage in the sense that you'll pay the landlord a rent, but then you'll sublet the property at a higher rent and make a profit. All of these things work. Now, my only proviso for Trevor is this. Trevor hasn't told me how old he is. And I'm not being ageist, it's just I'm getting a bit older and I realize that when you get a bit older, things become a little bit harder and slower. And if you're not used to doing something, it can be quite, uh, it can be a bit of a struggle sometimes to change your mindset, particularly as we get older. So all I would be saying to Trevor is it's perfectly possible but I think you've got to really want to do it because a lot of this, whether you're going to be successful or not, is going to come down to mindset. And it sounds Trevor, if you've unfortunately had a bit of a financial setback, you probably really need to do this in which case you should be motivated, in which case whatever obstacles and problems you do find along the way, and there will be some by the way, no matter what you do in property, hopefully you'll be able to push through and you'll have the motivation to push you through. So good. Great question. Can you get into property without any of your own money? Absolutely, you can. Absolutely, you can. And if I was starting again today, with the hindsight, with the knowledge which I now had, which I didn't have when I did start, I'd be using a lot more JV Finance and finding JV partners to help me to finance my deals. So there we go. Great questions. Keep the questions coming in. If you want to send me a question, by the way, probably the best way to do this, and I think I explained this on an earlier podcast, is to actually send me a question via the Progressive Property Facebook group. For whatever reason, doing it by messenger doesn't always stick, I don't always see them, they don't always come back, fat thumbs accidentally delete them. So if you've got any questions, if you wanna talk about anything, put it on the Facebook group, tag me in and I'll pick it up there. So until next time, I've been Peter Jones. If you wanna know more about me, then do come to my website, thepropertyteacher.co.uk. You'll find more about me there. There's a few resources there for you. Some paid for, some are free. You've got my blog there. Loads of information about property. Hope you like it. thepropertyteacher.co.uk. Until next time though, until the next progressive property podcast, here's to successful property investing.